0: I'm Jared McCormick, and I'm excited to have you here. I'm also excited that our annual MFA Applications episode is coming soon. I'll be interviewing an MFA Admissions Coordinator and hopefully getting answers to all of your questions. But first, we need to know what those questions are. So over the next few days, we're asking listeners to please send us your questions, either through social media or by email. Our interviewee is also a poet. So if you have poetry application specific questions, be sure to send them our way. You can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAWriters.com. So feel free to contact us using one of those platforms or send us an email at MFAWritersPodcast at gmail.com. And if you have time after sending your questions, we'd love for you to rate or review our show. The best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Also, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can apply at MFAWriters.com. Soon, on our website, you'll also find ways to support us financially if it's within your means. Finally, as always, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to MFA Writers podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today, I'm with Sean Dolan. Sean is a fiction writer from Missouri. His work has appeared in Hobart, 805 Lit Plus Art, the Los Angeles Review, and elsewhere. He is currently an MFA candidate at Western Washington University, where he is at work on his thesis, a collection of short stories. He recently attended the 10-House Summer Workshop and will begin his position as Managing Editor of the Bellingham Review in the fall. Today, Sean is going to read his Hobart piece for us, titled, For I Have Sinned. For I Have Sinned.
1: My son is 15 when he asks the first question I am unable to answer. He asks after soccer practice on a rainy Wednesday evening, his wet cleats leaving clumps of mud on the floorboard of the crossover he will soon inherit. We drive for a few miles, listening to the streak of windshield wipers on the glass, before he looks up from the glow of his phone, eyes beaming, inquisitive. Did you and mom have sex before marriage? I am at first taken aback, unsure of what prompted this unusual question. He is in his sophomore year at St. Teresa's, a co-ed school where everyone believes in God because they are told to, until their senior year, when they figure out God is the name adults prescribe to the feeling of not wanting to be alone. He takes biology classes with burgeoning girls who touch the lips of boys who do not know what they are doing or why, only that it feels good and it makes their parents red with rage. He takes history classes with friends who call the quiet kids' names. Oliver is at a precarious age, growing more distant by the day, but sometimes there is nothing he wants more than to talk to his father, and when given the chance, I will listen to anything he has to say, even if it's gibberish, even if it will destroy me. He is so curious, but he doesn't understand how dangerous another body can be. He has yet to see how a person can unravel. We are parked at a red light when I am thinking of how to tell him I slept with his mother three hours after we met. How we woke up tangled in twin sheets, naked. The dryness in our mouths reminding us how drunk we were the night before. Part of me wants to admit to the joys of tasting someone else. How a body will bend to the shape of another. The other part of me knows that I shouldn't, and I want him to be young forever. I respond with another question, not a lie, not even an avoidance of the truth. Why is that a question you want to know the answer to? He doesn't seem discouraged, doesn't seem turned off by the fact that he's indirectly having a conversation about the sex life of his parents. We're learning about marriage as a sacrament in religion class, Oliver says. Mr. Andrews says sex before marriage is a sin, one that must always be confessed. He is so young. I wish I could slip inside his body Protect him from the ways the world will break him in the next decade or so. I didn't know if he was telling the truth or not, Oliver continues. No one likes Mr. Andrews, and Lucy and Mara say he creeps them out, and Charlie says he's already had sex, but I don't believe him. He speaks with confidence, and it reminds me of when I was 15 and Mr. Andrews was my religion teacher, and the girls talked about how he creeped them out too, how the boys lied about their sexual endeavors, how it felt to feel myself getting older day by day, hair rising from odd places, finding feelings I did not have the name for. I don't think it's a sin, Oliver says. I bet Mr. Andrews has done way worse. He has forgotten his original question, which is probably best for the both of us. It feels strange to see him growing in this way, to watch him become someone I do not understand. I still tell him everything that he needs to hear, that only he can decide when and where he is ready, that both parties must be sober, That requires the unadulterated consent of another person but some of these reasons for wanting what he thinks he wants are potentially misguided he nods his head not fully understanding he will continue to hear mr andrew's ramblings on sex before marriage he will be forced to go to confession every other month speak to father o'malley with an untapped form of fear one that will linger in his belly long after he leaves the chapel forgive me father for i have sinned he will say and the lump in his throat will feel like a boulder. He will change more in the next year than he ever has, and it will scare him just as much as it will scare me. I tell him how much I love him, and he smiles back at me before returning to the infinite abyss of his phone. When we pull into our driveway, Oliver exits the car, but I stay for a second, thinking of how impossible it is to know anyone at all, how futile it is to try and guess what other people are thinking, even when it's your own son, Even when he is sitting two feet away from you, handing you his heart, trying his hardest to understand the ways in which people belong to each other.
0: Thank you. That was awesome. Thanks so much for reading it. And thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited. All right. So you describe yourself as a Missouri writer, as a (laughs) Missouri-based podcast, and as someone who is also a Missouri writer, I feel like I have to start there. So where are you from originally?
1: I'm from um, a town called St. Charles. So it's pretty much it's the St. Louis suburbs. I say so. Like if I'm talking to people from Missouri, they'll probably know where St. Charles is. But if I'm talking to people outside of Missouri, like of course I've moved to Washington in the past year, so I usually just say I'm from St. Louis. But it, it's it's the St. Louis metropolitan area. But it's a town called St. Charles. Um, it's it's got a lot of cool history, and um, I know our our biggest connection is the University of Missouri, where I did my undergrad, which is just such a cool place with an awesome English department too. So I mean, I feel like that's terms of being a Missouri rider, I feel like that's really where it comes from is, is, is Mizzou.
0: Yeah. I mean, I didn't like, I did my undergrad at Mizzou as well. And now I'm, I'm living in Columbia and teaching at Mizzou. So, so yeah, we have that Missouri connection there in Columbia, but also I spent a lot of time in St. Charles growing up. I, I grew up in like small town mid Missouri, but I was probably like 45 minutes from St. Charles. So we used to go up there and go to like, you know, the mall, like Mid-Rivers Mall, which is of in, like, course St. Peter's, like pretty close, right? So, <laughs> so yeah, I spent a lot of time up there.
1: Yeah, I guess for those who don't know, I feel like the, the biggest claim to fame of St. Charles is the Lewis and Clark, like the Lewis and Clark history is, is kind of right around where they started their journey. Um, so that's it's like our claim to fame. Funny enough, my when I moved to Washington for my grad program, I took almost the exact same path they did from St. Charles all
0: the way to the West Coast. It was crazy. Oh, that's kind of fun
1: you know, you know, two hundred years later, but it was a yeah. a cool journey to yeah to think about.
0: so what what was life like growing up in St. Charles, Missouri? Were you writing much back then? I did not write a ton growing
1: up. Um, English was always my favorite class as a kid. I was always a huge English nerd. Um, but I never really thought about you know fiction writing at a young age. I just kind of enjoyed reading. Um, my first real creative, I guess passion or love was film. And when I was in, when I was a young kid, you know, slash like early teen, I just I really wanted to be a movie director. I was obsessed with all like the classic movies, and you know, Stanley Kubrick and Alfred Hitchcock. And I would just watch. I would like rent movies from the library that like kids my age had like had no interest in watching, but I would just be obsessed with them. Um, so I was really interested in like the the arts and, and English, but I never really thought about fiction writing until until college. So I feel like that love of storytelling really started, like I said, with cinema. And then kind of once I, I started reading more short fiction, I think that love, for, that love for fiction writing really came about. I mean, to be exact, it was at the University of Missouri my freshman year when I took intro to fiction writing. It was the first class I took at college. And um, my professor, Joe Aguilar, uh, assigned Amy Bender's Willful Creatures which to this day is my favorite book of all time. (laughs) And when I read that, like, I, I, I think a lot of other writers of of all genres kind of have that like aha moment where they're like, Oh my God. And I read that book and I was just like, my mind was like, I know it sounds cliche, but my mind was like literally blown. And I feel like that was the moment I was like, Oh my God, I want to do what she's doing. I want to do what these writers are doing.
0: Yeah. I mean, like I, I grew up reading quite a bit too. I read a lot of fiction, but, um, I had a similar moment where for me, it was like 10th of December by George Saunders. I read that collection and I was just like, Oh my God, like this is what fiction can do. I want to be able to do this. I want to make people feel this.
1: I actually, funny enough, I've read 10th of December for my thesis this summer. And um, the Simplica Girl Diaries is now like one of my all time favorite stories after reading that. But it's such a cool moment. It's such a liberating, awesome moment to read something and and to have never read something like that before yeah, and be like, this is, this is what fiction can do. And even as, you know, a second year grad student, there's still stories I read every, you know, at least once or twice a month where I'm just like blown away by it's ingenue. It's just something new. I see something fresh or, you know, there's always new ways to explore the form or new stories popping up that just really, really excite you. And I think that's what excites me so much about, about short fiction. Yeah, in high school. I mean, I I loved English in high school, but we just read the typical high school English books, right? So To Kill a Mockingbird, 1984, all great books, but never... I, I think in college is where I really got into short fiction, which to me is almost everything I read now.
0: Yeah, there's some something about like contemporary fiction. Like once I started reading contemporary fiction that like I had a different reaction to it. Where I think for a long time growing up, I thought fiction was like this old thing that people did. Like there weren't any like regular people in the modern world who were just like writing novels. Those are things people did like a long time ago, right? And then to read someone who's like writing contemporary work set in contemporary times that's like moving you emotionally, it's like, oh, man. Yeah, it's like it's like soul affirming.
1: You in high school, you just read the, all the the dead white guys and you get the you know. And then you start to see what fiction is, and it just opens up so many doors. And I think that's was exciting.
0: So before the interview, I asked what makes your writing or experience as a writer unique, and you told me you think every writer has both writerly and non writerly experiences that makes their work unique, and that it all comes down to what in your life has brought you to the page, and what keeps bringing you back time and time again. So. Sean Dolan, what brings you back to the page time and time again?
1: It's an amazing question as I've kind of avoided writing all summer. i <laughs> um, been so focused on reading. Um, but I think I think it's a great question. We talked about a lot of this in, a, in my program. You know, it's easy to romanticize writing as this amazing pursuit, but it's to, to continue to write stories and to come back to the page and, and edit, edit, edit. It, these are hard things to do. And I think, it's hard to answer that question without thinking about how amazing it feels just to have a finished piece that moves people. And I think that comes back to my early answer of how, like, when I, when I read a story that I've never read before or a favorite story, and it gives me that feeling of like so much excitement, I I feel like that's what keeps me coming back. Like wanting to reproduce that feeling for other readers. So, you know, if, if I, when I get to write a story and someone, Feels, feels any emotion toward it in a, in a positive way. They feel moved, they feel, you know, enlightened. They feel like they were they were glad they had that chance to read that story. For me, that's that's why I do the work, right? Like it's, there are so many days where, you know, I'll be working on like a long form story, and I like I know I'll have this scene, I need to edit or write. And it's just, it's, it can be tough. And it's like, you know, you gotta, I think it's like, I just think it's a question you have to ask yourself time and time again, to keep you, you know, keep you honest about why you're, why you're here. And I think again, when you have that finished piece that, that brings people those positive feelings, that that's what makes it worth it for me, for sure.
0: I think that's one of the reasons why the workshop can be a really kind of magical experience. Cause it is so much work and so much uh, work in solitude, just editing, revising a story. And then when you get the chance to share with people and you get positive, a positive reaction, not necessarily even to like the story as a whole, but even just like parts of it or scenes, you know, to have an audience who are reacting to it and talking about it. I mean, it can be really affirming and makes you want to go back and like keep working at it.
1: 100%. I think that's also why I just, I love live readings. I'm a huge fan of live readings, both as a reader and as a listener. Mm-hmm. Because writing, I mean, writing is a very lonely profession. I mean, writing is a lonely, you know, experience. And to be able to share that work in that space is so exciting. Again, both as a reader and as a, I mean, sharing my own work and hearing other people's work. Like we all as writers spend so much time alone perfecting and crafting and editing and trying to make your piece what you want it to be. And then you have that, that time to kind of share it with the world. And it, it feels really exciting.
0: Well, I love this Hobart piece you read. I mean, I grew up Catholic in rural Missouri and, and when I first started writing, pretty much every story I wrote was an attempt to make sense of that experience. <laughs> so I always love when I when I read stories that are about you know people kind of working through that um, that experience. So, what was the inspiration for this piece for you?
1: Well, I also grew up Catholic in suburban Missouri, so <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously this this piece is you know somewhat somewhat of odd. I wouldn't call it autofiction, but I also think it's it's an interesting piece to talk about because especially with contemporary fiction, the lines between fiction and auto-fiction can, can be blurred. And of course, you know, this piece comes from a lot of lived experiences. Um, I think it's me kind of grappling with, yeah, growing up Catholic. And um, I feel like a lot of the flash fiction I write kind of deals with with adolescents, especially like young men and grappling with those feelings. Um, but it's fun. This piece is fun because I'm both, I feel like I'm both inhabiting This version of my younger self, but I also feel like I'm inhabiting the father as well. So it doesn't feel like an exact scene that happened in my life. Of course, there are real details. Like I played soccer all my life. So that was an easy detail to add in. Obviously, the Catholic school, I went to Catholic high school, super easy to add in. But I'm trying to both grapple with my lived experience as kind of this, this young man grappling with, with, with the Catholic church, but also, you know, a father and, and how he feels about um, the connection between him and his son. So, I th- and I think, it's, I think it's a fun piece when you're really discussing in terms of what fiction can do by blurring the, the lines between autobiographical and, and, and true fiction. I'm actually reading another book for my thesis I'm reading right now is uh, Essays of One by Lydia Davis. And um, she talks about how when she learned, uh, and she learned that fiction stories can essentially just be uh, loose memories of real life events. She like had an epiphany, um, but I think this Hobart piece both blurs the lines between fiction and autofiction, but also is exciting because I, I really am trying to inhabit it both those characters. Um, and both, both the connection they have and both the way connection can be difficult at both those ages. Right. I mean, early, early teenage years can be really, are, are tough. And, and I imagine, Parenthood can be very tough. I've been writing a lot about parenthood lately, but I'm not a parent. But it seems... I think that's also, I think, an amazing part of fiction is to be able to kind of inhabit spaces that you aren't necessarily, you know, an expert on, but you can kind of
0: jump into shoes that you usually wouldn't wear. I had almost every semester in my MFA program, I had somebody come up to me at the end of the semester and be like, do you have kids? And I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> it's because I would often write stories that were like doing very similar things that you're describing. It's like inhabiting a character who is kind of like my father, or kind of like my grandfather, something about trying to make sense of like what they went through in this. I mean, I grew up in rural Missouri, like, you know, like three generations of people were in the same town, you know? So it's like, trying to understand like what my grandfather and my dad were going through in the same place, but in a different time and like raising their own kids, raising me. I don't know. I mean, that, that does bring me, that's one of the things that brings me back to the page a lot is exploring those kind of masculine relationships in small town, Missouri.
1: Yeah. And I think, again, that's just a, such exciting part about fiction is like, um, I, I feel like the cliches when you write a book or a story and one of your friends or family members it's like, Ooh, am I this character? (laughs) It's like, you know, you're, you're, of course you're drawing on lived experiences, but you're also like adding these fictional elements. And so like, even stories that are somewhat autobiographical, like aren't because you're able to kind of like resituate a situation. You're able to like change things about certain characters. And that's why I love flash fiction when it's quote unquote realism. It's like, these events are obviously drawn upon real things and these characters are obviously mirroring real people, but they're also not at all. And you're able to kind of work through certain characters and certain people and, and not change things for the worse, but just fictionalize things. And I think that's, just a beautiful thing in general. Yeah.
0: And for me, it's like not an intentional thing, like, okay, I'm going to like fictionalize this real life thing that happened. But often it's just a seed that I start with is like based in reality. And then through the process of writing and revising and revising and revising, it's just by the end, like that, any kind of autobiographical things that were in it are pretty much gone, right? It's become completely fictionalized. Yeah. So I'm curious a little bit about your process we can talk about revision or we can talk about generating stories but you told me that one of the things that you really like talking about related to writing is your quote process or lack thereof so I'm curious to hear um, what your process looks like and what you mean by lack thereof Um,
1: I like talking about it because I guess I feel affirmed like I, I know other writers who write every like Stephen King always says write every day I have some really close friends who write every day. It's like friends in my program who write every day. And I, I absolutely do not write every day. Um, and to say it out loud and hear other writers be like, oh, I also don't write every day. It's like, ugh, feels good to, to know other awesome writers don't write every day. I say like thereof just because I feel like it's not as, or, like, I feel like I'm a pretty organized person, very organized person, but my writing process is not. Um, it's a bit chaotic and scattered. I would say almost all of my stories start with one seed. And then I let it simmer for a second. So I think most of my stories either start with a line or a character or a scene or an idea. I like to do that like the what if game, like what if X character did this Y thing and then Z happened. So There's a scene, there's a setting. I usually let that sit for a little bit and then I come back to it. I don't know why this is why that happens, but I just do.
0: So when it's sitting, are you like thinking about it a lot, turning it over in your head or are you just kind of letting it? Be away from your mind for a while and then coming back to it fresh? Definitely thinking about it a lot. I think when when that's on the like you have a, a character or a scene
1: on the page, it exists, but then you're thinking about what could come next. You're thinking about why it happened, you're thinking about why characters do certain things. For me, when I whenever I try to write a story just from scratch, from like point A to point B, it ends up not being my best work. I feel like my best work happens when I when I let that sit. I come back to it and I've I've had time to think about, oh, this character is in this situation and now I know what they would genuinely do rather than trying to write that from scratch. I almost never write a story from first line to last line in order.
0: So, you know, it's, it's a curious thing because I think you could argue that that is still writing time. You know, like if you have a story that's on your mind and you're turning it over and you're thinking about it, like, why is that not considered writing time? Do you actually have to be putting words down on the page for it to be writing time? I mean, I think there's an argument to be made, Sean, that you do write every day, even if you aren't putting the words <laughs> on the page. Could you uh, tell my thesis advisor that? And then I'll do, That'd be really, that'd be awesome.
1: <laughs> no, I, I, and I, I appreciate that. And I also agree that the time you spend away from the page is just as important or more important than the time you spend on the page. But I think I would like to challenge myself in the next year to, be, to to write more consistently on the page Yeah, more
0: often. You know, it's different from story to story. I've definitely had stories that I've really, like, thought about a lot and plotted out in my head that I've, I loved and I thought turned out great. And then others where I just, like, have to be sitting down and putting the words down and figuring it out as I go, and that's the only way I can make it work.
1: Yeah, and I think, and again, that just all comes down to, like, Giving that fine like that final piece we talked about earlier about how like that's why you come back to the page. Every writer is gonna have their own process. And I think that's definitely what I've learned in MFA program is to not to not be jealous of other people's writing schedules, to not judge other people's writing schedules. Everyone's got their
0: own process of how they come back to the page, and um, that's what makes every writer unique. Okay, so you mentioned the thesis, which you are currently in the process of writing. It's a short story collection. Um, you've published short stories and flash fiction pieces so why do you think you're drawn to the shorter form as opposed to novel writing it's such an awesome question um simply put i'm just i'm absolutely in love with
1: the short story and i talk about this a lot with with peers too about how i mean the industry itself the publishing industries at least in fiction is very novel focused right you always hear that the agents want the novel that all writers if they're trying to sell a story collection have to have the novel and I do like novels too, but I think there's something so special and unique about the ephemeral experience of a short story. You're spending less time with the characters, obviously, you're spending less time in the story, but it it makes that kind of those feelings almost pronounced, almost more intense, because you know that time is short and it makes it makes the final stages even harder to say goodbye because those time that time is so short. I think that, and I also think the form itself is very different, right? Like, you know, your 200 page novel is going to have to have, I don't want to say filler because, you know, a lot of novels don't have any filler, but just scenes that, you know, in a short story wouldn't be necessary. But the short story to me feels like every single decision and editing is so important. And in terms of flash fiction, I interned at Wigleaf my last year of college. And I didn't even really know much about flash fiction until, until that experience. And then that kind of invigorated my love for that form because I also think flash fiction and and the short story itself are also different forms. Like, of course, they're similar, but um, you have even less space, less than a thousand words. It's this super, super tight space to say what you need to say. Every single word counts, both literally for submissions and, and figuratively.
0: I think it's a good exercise for like young writers, emerging writers too. I mean, when I first... Decided that I wanted to write fiction. I was just like, okay, I guess I'm going to write a novel, right? I mean, because that's what you have to do, right? And then, you know, I just would start a project and then it would fizzle out. And then, like, later I'd be like, oh, here's another idea. And I would start it and it would fizzle out. You know, I was like never finishing anything. And it wasn't until I was like, okay, I'm going to focus on short stories that suddenly I saw my writing getting a lot better because I was starting and finishing, starting and finishing, starting and finishing. They weren't great stories, but I was learning to start and finish things. I was learning to revise. I was learning to pay attention to every sentence, to every word. And then my writing got much better more quickly. So if I, th- I think if I went back and tried to write a novel now, I would have a much better chance of like actually producing something decent.
1: But yeah, like you said, because you're, you're practicing like those, those, those small tools, the short story teaches those, those essential tools as, as of being a fiction writer. Like no, no fiction writer jumps into their first fiction class with a novel manuscript and if they do good for them because that is insanely hard but like like that's why i think those those workshops are so important because they teach those tools but it's funny too because in terms of workshop what do you workshop You workshop short stories You talk about short stories you read publish short stories then you graduate it's like hey where's your novel so i think that's that's a conversation for another time but the whole like the 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 emphasis on the novel i guess they just sell better but I'm, I'm team short story all the way, and I wish I wish they were easier to sell.
0: Well, okay, so let's talk about the program and workshopping a little bit. So as I mentioned, you're currently working on your thesis as part of your final year at Western Washington University's two-year MFA program in creative writing, which is located in Bellingham, Washington, just across the border from Vancouver. We're going to talk about your time in the program in a bit, but first I wanted to talk about your experience applying to programs, which you actually did twice so can you tell us about your first round of applications and how you ended up at Western Washington after the second round?
1: Absolutely. So I think senior year of undergrad, I was like pretty dead set on going to an MFA. I just knew it's what I wanted. Like I said, I was, I was at the University of Missouri. I had a really awesome couple of mentors who helped me through the process. Um, so I felt, I felt ready to apply. Right. i applied to 20 programs across the country. I really wanted to leave Missouri too. I wanted to kind of see somewhere new and, and travel and have a new experience. So I applied to 20 programs across the country, all fully funded. We can talk more about how important full funding is for me and for, I, I hope a lot of people, but I applied to 20 programs across the country and got, got into zero. And um, I, I always look back and, and actually really thankful about the experience for a variety of reasons. I think i think the biggest thing is, is it just taught me that i wasn't wasn't quite ready like i thought i thought i was ready i knew they were competitive I, I wasn't you know overly confident i don't think i knew it was gonna be really hard to get in but i thought all i need is one but still it taught me a lot about the process of how competitive it is but also how how polished your manuscript needs to be and how i guess not how dedicated you need to be in terms of what you want but how just ready. You need to feel. Just I, I think the biggest advice or my biggest takeaway would be: just because you want to go to an MFA program at a certain time doesn't mean it's the right time for you to go to an MFA program, right? So I wanted more than anything to go after my at, right after undergrad, but I just I simply was not ready as a writer as a person. So it ended up working out pretty well, and of course um, something happened in March of 2020 that because I graduated in May of 2020 from undergrad. So something happened in, in March of 2020 that would have um, changed you know, the experience going right in from undergrad in that fall, of course. Um, but I, a lot of things to talk about. But I think that, like I said, the biggest takeaway is just because you want to go to an MFA program at a certain time doesn't mean it's, it's the right time or the best time for you. And I learned that. And then the second round, it ended up being working out a lot better because I, I, I felt like I knew more what I wanted from an MFA program. I did more research. I I felt more confident in my writing. A lot of things changed just in the course of a year.
0: Yeah, I think it's not actually that uncommon of an experience for, for people to apply the first time and not get in anywhere because it is super competitive. But, you know, that's a, a reason we should be talking about this because I think it's probably a difficult experience and it happens to people and they you know, assume the worst about themselves or their writing, but it, like you said, it might just not have been the right time. So, I mean, I think what you said is really good advice. And then, what was it about that experience? Like, did did you feel like it motivated you in any way? Um, like, was it helpful to your writing? Like, what did you do different in the second round that led to those acceptances? You think?
1: I, I, yeah, it's a good question. I think I think the two biggest takeaways would be, and one in terms of the writing. I look back and, you know, I still enjoy the stories I submitted for my first round of applications. But looking back, they just, they weren't ready for MFA applications. And for applicants who are listening, who are going to apply, you'll hear a million, million times, just apply with your best work. And I mean, that's still the best advice to this day. So I think I applied the first time with work I was most excited about. Work that kind of felt the most me but it wasn't my best work. And I think the thing you have to do is just talk to your trusted peers, talk to mentors, talk to your writerly friends about what your best work is. And that might, it might not be your favorite story. Your best story or poem or essay might not be your favorite, but submitting with your best stuff is it's the simplest advice in the game, but it's also the best. So looking back my first round, I was like, Ooh, these two stories are really exciting. You know, they're doing stuff that I think is really cool. But looking back, it was not my best, most polished work. Second round, I uh, chose two different stories. I did a, actually. I think it, it depends on the program because each program wants different stuff. But for most programs, I did like a mid-length story, a flash piece, and a longer story. And um, second round, I played to 14 places. I got into three, and was waitlisted at four. So the numbers obviously changed quite a bit. But the second thing too, I think, which we can t- touch on more, is also I felt like I. I guess I would say I did more research into programs, but I maybe felt like I applied to places for more purposeful reasons. I think in the first round, I was just like, Ooh, schools that I know have good MFA programs and just applied there, which doesn't mean those wouldn't have been good fits or doesn't mean that they're not good programs. But I think I just applied to programs that I knew were fully funded and were just known programs. Um, like the big names, of course, you hear like Iowa and Michener and, and Michigan, which again, are all amazing programs. But I didn't really have any specific reason to apply other than this. I wanted an MFA. And then I think in the second round, it became more, okay, like what kind of work do I want to write? Like what kind of professors do I want to work with? Where do I want to live? Like what kind of classes do I want to teach? What elements of funding for me are really important? Like health insurance to me is super important. So, like. Most most fully funded programs offer health insurance, but some don't. And so I think I was a lot more um, purposeful on where I applied for certain reasons rather than just saying, I want an MFA and I want it to be fully funded. That turned into, I want an MFA and I want it to be fully funded, but I want to work with faculty who are excited to work with me. I want to have a good faculty-student ratio. I want to be in a place where I'm close to nature. I want to have the, the experience... Of, of this MFA without just doing it just because.
0: Well, you ended up at Western Washington University. Um, I was poking around on their website a little bit. It doesn't have a ton of information. So I'm hoping you can like fill in the blanks for us a little bit. I saw that the program encourages a focus on multi-genre or cross-genre writing. It seems that there are fiction, nonfiction, and poetry workshops and that students are required to try out multiple genres. So what's that been like?
1: Yeah. So to anyone applying, the website is super out of date, um, but I'd be happy to answer any questions. You hit the nail right on the head there. It's, it's, it is a very genre-curious program. Ironically enough, I'm a pre- pretty stubborn fiction writer. I <laughs> tend to write fiction and I love fiction. And it's just funny because we're probably the most genre-friendly program in the country. So all, all MFA candidates are required to take one at least one workshop outside their primary genre. So like you said, there are fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction uh, workshops, as well as multi-genre workshops, which can also be considered hybrid workshops. So um, I've enjoyed that experience quite a bit. I've taken mostly fiction workshops along with non-workshop classes, but I took a multi-genre workshop, kind of a hybrid workshop last. Actually, my first quarter, it's a quarter system. My first quarter at Western, I took kind of a hybrid class of like flash fiction slash auto fiction. It was kind of a hybrid between fiction and, and CNF and it was awesome. I really enjoyed it. I think the biggest the biggest element to these classes are, um, at least to the program too, is that we're really encouraged to just try new things. Um, I don't wanna say it's low stakes because we're all serious writers who are writing awesome stuff. So low stakes isn't the right word, but it's. I feel like there's less pressure than I expected. I feel like everyone's encouraged to, to write something new, to kind of go outside their comfort zone, to experiment with things, to try things that might not work, which can be a scary thing in general. But um, the program itself is, is I think, known for being genre-curious and not even just like, oh, I like to write in two genres. I write fiction and poetry. Great. But it's like a lot of people are writing really cool stuff that's just kind of like genre-less. I, I think hybrid work is very encouraged, stuff that maybe falls outside of of, of certain boundaries. Like on my thesis list, For the summer of my reading list i did almost all short story collections but my advisors really encouraged some hybrid work so like for example i read Blue bluets by maggie nelson which is um like in most bookstores will be considered poetry but is also kind of like flash fiction kind of almost essay form as well yeah that's just a long-winded way of saying that western is very genre curious very genre friendly actually on our i believe on our degrees on our my eventual degree it won't say fiction i think it's an mfa in creative writing so you'll apply with you'll apply with the genre that you feel most comfortable in but even though i again i'm I'm a stubborn fiction writer i i write fiction and that's what i like to do but i i think and i think i'm technically just an mfa candidate in creative writing
0: so, besides um, experimenting with multiple genres, you also told me that teacher preparation and a willingness to try different styles and variations of workshops were things that have stood out to you. So, tell us about your workshop experience.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I have in my first year, I took three workshops, and it's cool because I think they were also different. So, I think I, t- I took one fiction workshop that felt pretty traditional, the more circular table Iowa style model workshop where you know someone brings in a piece. And That piece is workshopped. But I also had another workshop where um, we really borrowed from Matthew Salis's Craft in the Real World, which is I know has been discussed on the show, is such a great book. Um, where we just kind of I mean we did things differently, but it was just it was so encouraged to just try new things. So, like, you know, Matthew Salis's in that book, there I think there are just over a dozen different style workshops that are offered. And at the beginning of this of the quarter, our instructor was basically like, "Hey, any of these that work for you, we're gonna we're gonna try out." So people were a encouraged to kind of try new stuff with the writing they brought to the table, and b were encouraged to to try a different workshop. I guess workshop the workshop. We were encouraged to to try a different workshop model. And so in that class, you know, we had a variety of different workshop models. Like one where the readers only ask questions of the writer. One where the writer only asked questions from the readers ones where we did things like kind of backwards. Like, I think, I just think that like a lot of recent scholarship is kind of encouraging programs to pull away from the Iowa model and just do things differently. And I think that's A, awesome and be kind of the right direction to go into just because I think every writer needs something different from workshop. And I think that the idea that every writer needs the exact same thing from this exact same model is just of course it's toxic and it's also just like not working anymore. And so the fact that I've had three different workshops at this program and all three have been so different, I think is just a testament to the direction things are are kind of heading in, in terms of like what workshop can be, especially when it comes to centering the writer. I think I would say that in all three of those workshops, I feel like the writer and their work has been centered rather than the reader's opinions on those works.
0: And, you know, earlier you mentioned funding, full funding as something that was important to you. That was one question I had about the program because I couldn't actually find anything on the website that said whether this program was fully funded or partially funded. So is it fully funded? And if so, are students doing teaching assistantships or are there fellowships? How does it work? Great question.
1: Um, we are fully funded. I think we're technically not 100% fully funded because we offer some like part-time stuff like we have like one or we had like one or two like part-time students who didn't have teaching assistantships who were allowed to be in the program but like i I, i'm saying this because i think we don't show up on all those lists like i know there are those like great resources that have like fully funded mfa programs and a lot of times we don't show up on that list just because of that um just because of that caveat but like for listeners and people researching like yes this this is if you apply as a full-time student, this is a fully funded program. All students are fully funded with health insurance. Ninety, I guess, ninety-five percent of students teach. So all first years, no matter what, teach English one hundred and one. Um, it's a quarter system, so it's a one-one-one, which is a great schedule because I know MFA other MFA programs you're teaching two per quarter or per semester. So one-one-one on a quarter system, all first years teach English one hundred and one, and then second years most teach English 101, and then one second year per cohort gets um, to edit for the Bellingham Review, which is uh, the literary journal associated with Western Washington University. Luckily enough, I am in that position now. So I am not teaching um, English 101 for this year, but I'm super, super excited to be in this new editorial role. You mentioned in a question earlier about teacher prep. I just say it's awesome because I've known friends in MFA programs that haven't had the best teacher prep. But we at Western have um, this thing called Comp Camp, which is actually going on for the first day right now, um, where all the first years and second years teaching English 101 meet for a week and essentially kind of prep for the teaching year. So they talk about curriculum, they talk about, you know, first time teaching methods, just all the stuff that kind of prepares you for week one uh, as, of, of being a teaching assistant. And that's why I feel like the teaching prep here is so awesome because, I mean, I was a first time teacher. I feel like a pretty strong majority of the first years in my cohort last year were first-time teachers. But by the first day of class, a lot of those kind of stresses or worries were quelled just because we came in with, I think, more preparation than we expected.
0: And then I was curious also about the sense of community in the program. You mentioned to me that the MFA and the MA students are pretty close. So have you felt like within the program itself and within the department that students are pretty close? Um, Yes.
1: And I also think that's probably the most special thing about this program, which at first I was a little confused about, but now I've made some lifelong friends who are MAs. And I I definitely want to highlight the fact that uh, uh, the the shared program, it's a bit confusing, but for the most part, basically, MFAs and MAs share space in the classroom and, and just in terms of the teaching community and the classroom community. So think like other programs who just offer MFAs, right? Your workshops are going to be comprised of everyone getting an MFA. While we also simultaneously have an MA program where students are doing more quote unquote scholarly work, right? They're not creating creative theses. They're doing quote unquote academic theses, but they still get to take workshops with us. And that's why I think it's so cool because these MA students who are doing more again, quote unquote academic work are able to Take creative workshop classes where they're also really encouraged to try new things. So just because you know the the MFA side of the cohort is doing the creative thesis and is doing more creative work, we still share those classroom spaces with MA students who are also so excited to write poetry or write fiction or write whatever. And I think that A creates a space that is less toxic. There's a lot of encouragement for students to try new things. There's a lot of encouragement to not worry about what the MFA's think about the MA's work right there's no there's no really classification there it's just all the students together in a workshop no matter if you're an MFA or an MA you're writing your work and that's all that matters
0: but you get some different perspectives i imagine that you then you would if you were just in a classroom with MFA students 100% 100% and just to speak yeah to speak to your
1: question about in terms of closeness like like you said like it just it opens up the pool for, for meeting new people and meeting new writers. And I've made some amazing friends who I wouldn't have had the chance to meet at a program where it's just MFAs. And so at first I was like, oh, okay, so this, my cohort is really small, but a lot of these people are MAs and it ended up just being, I think a really cool part about the program because like I said, I've met some of my fun friends and I also just feel like encouraging MAs to write really cool creative work just makes for a better creative classroom.
0: Well, that all sounds great. I'm glad that you're enjoying your experience there. And um, before we go, I want to give you the last word. What I've been asking people this season is, what is one way in which the MFA experience has been different, for better or for worse, from your expectations when applying?
1: I, I of course, looked at this question beforehand and thought a lot about it. And I I, I do think it comes down to, again, not low stakes, but less pressure. I feel like I expected the MFA program to be just rigorous and intense and almost like scary, but I felt like the community I've landed in is much, much more about encouraging your best work rather than having to write your absolute best work. So there's just, there's, there's more, at least at Western there's more freedom to kind of try new things and, and not worry about writing the absolute best thing in the world. And you're not really writing for publication. You're just, you're writing, you're getting words on the page, no matter if it's what you expected or, you know, the genre you, you hoped it'd be in, I think, I think it really all comes down to at least the experiences is a, a more warm environment than I expected, which I, I hope, I hope my, my original fears of the MFA program aren't shared by everyone. I'm not saying MFA programs around the country are, are scary and intense, but um, I just, I feel like I've landed in a space that is um, encouraging and, and friendly and um, more about the process than the actual, Goal for publication, I guess.
0: Well, that sounds great. And Sean, it's been really nice to meet you, to get a chance to chat with you. And next time you're in Columbia, let me know. We'll go to Ragtag Cinema. We'll get a beer. We'll watch an independent film, okay? I cannot wait. Uh, I will definitely let you know. All right. Thanks for stopping by. Cheers. Thanks, man.